Welcome to the Concord Online Podcast. Each week, we're going to be bringing you sermons from Concord to be a resource for you to live on mission with us to inspire people to follow Jesus. Grab your Bible. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. We're in a series of sermons that we called Ask Me Anything, which many of you chose to mean stump the pastor, right? And uh, so it's been fun to kind of work our way through your questions. We have been selecting kind of the themes here, all right? The themes that can get, help me answer as many questions as I can. It's, it's been interesting because to answer your questions, these sermons are a lot more like teaching time than preaching time. And there's, there's, there's a difference in preaching and teaching. And so it, there's the challenge of kind of working that in together. And so I want to encourage you, Bridget, my wife said, make sure you tell them to listen quick today. Uh, because she saw how many pages the sermon notes are. And she said, hurry up, hurry up. We all want to go to lunch. All right, so, uh, so we are going to walk through a lot today in our short time together, and we want to look at biblical perspectives on government and politics. All right, biblical perspectives on government and politics. If you'd say, Pastor, every time I come to church, y'all are talking about politics. Here's the deal. We don't talk about politics a lot, so you pick up your rhythm, and we'll keep ours. All right, so, uh, so we'll, you just keep coming, and this isn't something that is necessarily normal, but this is an effort to ask, answer questions, rather, to answer questions that folks are asking because they want to know what the Bible says. And last week we talked about heaven and God really moved, man. Can we just give God praise for the folks that were saved last week and, man, they now are certain of their eternity in heaven. You know, last week we, kinda, we were talking about heaven and it has eternal significance. Today we're talking about something that has temporary significance. And I'm thankful that this just has temporary significance. Although this is very important, there will be a day that government and politics are no more when we're in the presence of God and he is our king. And I can't wait for that day and our hearts are focused on that day. But let me be very clear with you this morning. Like it's important for us to understand biblical perspectives on what is government, on why should we be involved in government, what is politics, and how we engage the political processes of our nation. Let me be just very, very clear with you. I believe Christians should be involved in the political processes of their community, state, and nation. You should be involved, but how you choose to engage really matters. And that's what we want to spend our time understanding today. Because this gets messy. This gets difficult. We don't really know how to engage or when to engage. But the scripture is going to help us today to clarify, like, how should I take a biblical posture in this area of government and and politics? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So in a foundational way, our call from Jesus in our public testimony is defined as salt and light. And so all that we do to engage in political processes should be bound in this idea of, am I being salt that preserves and light that purifies? And so in Romans 13, Paul addresses it. And he addresses it to a group of Roman believers who were confused about how now they should engage because their life had been changed by Jesus. 
Like remember, these, these are not people who grew up in church. These are not people whose grandmother taught them the ways of God. These are people who had lived foreign and pagan lives to the teaching of scripture in Rome. And Paul is helping them understand how they should engage in the process and cling to their testimony of faith. So stand with me and let's study together. Romans chapter 13. The Bible says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those, who, or those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's thank God for the reading of his word. Let's pray together before we're seated this morning. Father, we approach this passage and we're anxious. God, we approach this passage and we feel just an unsettledness in our soul because, God, we're so concerned over the happenings of our day. We're so concerned over the direction of our culture. But God, I pray that we could engage your word today, not from a political perspective, but from a biblical perspective. That God, you give us hearts to hear and eyes to see what your spirit is saying. So God, teach us from your word today. And may we be your people, in this day, for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You see, all of Paul's letters, and Paul wrote so many letters in the New Testament, all of Paul's letters, he would start with teaching and doctrine for our understanding, and then he would apply it. And in Romans chapter 12 is the moment that he begins to apply what he had said in all of Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. And so in Romans 12, he's, he's building these basis for relationships. He's like, hey, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he's like, hey, here, here's how you relate to God. And verses 3 through 8, to ourselves. Verses 9 through 16, to one another. And verses 17 to 21, to our enemies. And he continues that in chapter 13. And in verses 1 through 7, he's like, hey, here's, here's what it means to have the proper relationship to the state in verses 8 through 10, to the law, and verses 11 through 14, on the day of the Lord's return. So Paul, in chapter 12 and 13, is kind of help Christians find their footing. He's helping them find their foundation. And how should I interact with? What is the biblical perspective of? What does this mean? And how should I live in light of all that he has described in the first 11 chapters of what Jesus has done for us? And so today, as we kind of wrestle with this relationship with the state, we need to understand 
fundamentally that God has established three institutions, the home, the government, and the church. The home, the government, and the church are God's ideas that he initiated on this earth. Is it surprising to you then that our enemy sets his aim on attacking the home, the government, and the church? Like, why are these things so controversial and why are these things so difficult? Why does the enemy work so hard to make the home such a confusing place? Why is it that it seems like government has just gone off the rails and what's wrong with the church? Like, like we sense all these things and we ask ourselves these questions, but understand the, the reality is the reason why these things are so confusing and difficult is because God established them and the enemy hates everything that God has begun. And so... When we approach matters of home, government, and church, we need to understand we're stepping into the spiritual war that is raging for the hearts of mankind. So what are just some questions I can answer for you today about how we should relate to government and politics? First, let me just answer this question. What is a biblical perspective on government? What is a biblical perspective on government? Paul, in the first seven verses of Romans 13, answers that for us. And his short answer would simply just be, submit to and participate in government because God has established government for our good. So submit to and participate in. Like the, the Bible here is speaking very clear about our relationship between believers and the government. We're to obey governmental authorities. The government is to treat us fairly and justly. But even when the government does not, we're still to live up to our end of the deal. Because our ultimate authority for a Christian is not found in the government, it's found in the word of God, God's word toward us, the scripture. You see, it's our ultimate authority. So even when government does not hold its end of the deal, we still hold ours. We live up to ours because we're doing it out of obedience to God. Now, when the Government asks us to do something that's in direct disobedience to God's word. Then we disobey the government because we keep our heart and conscience clean before Almighty God. God established governments. And God's desire for government is that they would never contradict his living word that he has given to us in the scriptures. But to resist the law is to resist God. And the only time it is appropriate to resist the law is when the law begins to oppose God. And so what we must wrestle with today is not what do I think about our government, but what has God said about government and how can I be certain that I'm obeying God ultimately over everything else? The reason God established government is because of sin in our hearts. Like if there was no sin, there would be no need for authority. But what God understood was that, you know, Adam and Eve sinned and they had to step out of the garden and their hearts then were carried away in this sin and they were deceitfully wicked. That, that's why we see God establishing government in Genesis 9. Like remember the, the, the kind of order here. Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation accounts. Genesis 3, sin enters the world. Genesis 9, government shows up. So God instituted government because of the sinfulness of man. And God understood that man had to have some authority because man had already rebelled against God's authority. When Adam and Eve rejected God's authority and their hearts were in rebellion, God instituted human government to provide order and authority for mankind. 
You see, any citizen can obey the law because of fear of punishment. But a Christian ought to obey the law because they're doing such as an expression of honor and respect to God, ultimately. Like the reason that we're good citizens is not just so people would pat us on the back, but so that God would be honored with our lives. And Paul gets very specific with these Roman believers. In verse 7, he even speaks to their taxes. Like you can almost feel it in the room when I read verse 7 today. Everybody went, oh. It even talks about taxes. You see, like Paul was being very clear with the public nature of good citizenship and the more private nature of being honest with your taxes. He's saying publicly and privately, corporately and personally, we should be people living in submission to the governing authorities because in doing so, I'm honoring the Lord. One of the lies of the enemy is is that he, he wants us to believe in this sense of personal autonomy. Like, I want to do what I want to do. No one can tell me what to do. I can define what is right and what is wrong. I, I can choose where I go and where I don't go. Like, I, 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 it starts and centers on me. Like, that's one of the lies of the enemy that people of our culture believe today, that they define it all. I mean, think about our teenagers. Our high school students are here in this hour. And listen to me, high school students. I know right now you're like, oh, if I could just get out from underneath mom and dad's rules. But the day you get out from under mom and dad's rules, it's because you found a job. And guess what your job's going to have, teenagers? Rules. <laughs> you get the idea? L listen, guys, spring break is not a thing adults get. I remember when I first went to work, I was like, man, it's about time for that break to roll around, isn't it? And nope. You see the idea? Like, when we're teenagers, like, oh, if I can just grow up, I'll be, have some freedom. No, hear me now. Like, like, freedom. The idea of freedom. What that fundamentally is, a desire to be back in right relationship with God again. Like everybody says, I just want my freedom. The reason freedom is such a fundamental desire in our heart is because God put it there. Because when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they experienced freedom because they were in the presence of God. Ultimate freedom is found in God's presence. And so this idea of freedom, like to place our hopes of freedom in a political process or in a politician is a misplaced hope. Our hope for freedom will never be realized on this earth until Jesus returns. Because he is freedom and he is the one who sets men free. Like this is what he does. Jesus Christ sets us free. And so this desire for personal autonomy is never going to be realized in you doing what you want. It will only be realized through submission to Christ and his lordship in our life. And this perspective helps us wrestle with all that we feel about government. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the scripture says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I've been there, the dad to an eight-year-old little girl. And one day, we're going one direction. And the next day, we're not. Like, you know that in the life of your children. You see that in others. Like, man, I can't even understand. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Man, that, that's our hearts. Like our hearts, they're hard to understand. They're deceitfully wicked above all things. And so the authority that God has placed in our lives is for our 
good. So government is a gift from God. Man, that's hard to understand today, isn't it? Government is a gift from God for our good, and we're called to submit to government, and they're called to lead us to righteousness. And this is where the trouble comes in, isn't it? Like governmental leaders are called of God to protect and preserve and lead the nation to righteousness. That doesn't seem to be what's happening in our day. Why is that? Well, it's, it's the politics. We have a biblical perspective in Romans 13 on government. But we don't see biblical perspectives on politics. Where there are people, there are politics. There are politics in this church. There are politics at your child's rec league. There are politics at your workplace. If there are people there, there will be politics. Politics is not ordained by God, but politics has become man's way to gain power and hold power in an organization, institution, or government. Politics, in many ways, could be defined as influence. I think there are are three important elements that help us understand what we mean when we say the term politics. Politics refers to the institutional activity of government over an entire population backed by the power of coercion which in varying degrees is regarded to be legitimate. Like, like, think about it. You understand that a commercial, or as the kids call it, an ad, has been intentionally crafted to make you want to purchase whatever it is they're selling. And politics is the practice of packaging a person or a party in an intentional way that will connect with you to make you want to purchase or vote whatever it is they're selling. Now here's the truth. A biblical perspective on government says Christians are not for sale. Like we are not beholden to any earthly organization we're held in the hands of a righteous God. And so the notion that any political leader or any political system can gain hold of Christians and put them over as a voting block is just false in the eyes of the Lord. Because we are kingdom people. So do not sell yourself out when you've already been bought with a price, the life of Jesus Christ. And so what we understand is the reason that things get so confusing is not because of the good gift of government, but it's because of the political entrapments and ensnares that ensnare us and keep us from standing on our own as ones bought with a price citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Second question, what priorities should Christians hold, should Christians hold to in politics? What priorities should Christians hold to in politics? If politics is a part of the game here and it is manipulating and ruining God's good gift of government that is called to lead us to righteousness, how do we engage in this political environment? Well, if you think about Daniel chapter one, we won't turn there today because we have to go so far. 
But in Daniel chapter 1, we meet a young man named Daniel. We meet three other young men who we know today as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was Daniel's real name, but it was not necessarily the given name that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You say, well, what are their given names? I can't pronounce them, so I'm just going to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar came and overthrew Jerusalem, and, and Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to bring back some of the established leaders and bring back to Babylon some of the up-and-coming leaders. And he brought them back and he wanted to make their life incredibly comfortable so he could teach them the language, the customs, and the culture of Babylon. All right, so, so he's saying, hey, look, I'm going to take these people and I'm gonna take them from their homeland, make them really like us with the ultimate goal of sending them back that they would govern in Jerusalem the way that they had learned in Babylon. It was politics. And so as Nebuchadnezzar began this process, Daniel was wise and and he chose not to eat of the king's food from the king's table. And it was Daniel's way of saying, I'm going to hold on to my distinction as a Jewish man. I'm going to hold on to my distinction, we would say today, as a kingdom citizen. I'm not going to be aligned with any group. I'm going to be who God made me to be. And so for 10 days, Daniel was able to not eat of the king's table. And at the end of the 10 days, they recognized that Daniel and his three buddies... They were healthier than everyone else. They were stronger, they had wisdom, they had understanding. And they stood with integrity against the culture of the day. Now before we just say, oh, go be a Daniel, let me remind you that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all four received death sentences. But let me also remind you that God preserved their lives every time. And these men were willing to go to death to maintain the distinction and the identity of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They were unwilling to become like the Babylonians. They were unwilling to play the political game. And God used them in remarkable ways. You see, I really believe with all of my heart, the priority that we should hold to when it comes to politics is standing firm and movable, as Paul said to the church at Corinth, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because our citizen ultimately should be defined by heaven, not by the land we live in on earth. And so the priorities that I hold when it comes to politics, like I learned from Daniel that I'm not going to allow myself to be bought I'm not going to allow myself to be, to be manipulated. Like I'm going to have understanding and walk with the Lord. Like if you study Daniel chapter one, you'll see like Daniel had an unusual wisdom and understanding. And that's what it takes in our day. Like an unusual wisdom and understanding that only come from the Lord. And this wisdom and understanding is going to be found as we send ourselves in the word of God. Like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we center ourselves in the word of God and we, we understand and we have this outlook of a kingdom perspective. And so if we're going to have that outlook, we've got to kind of wrestle with some things. You see, culture is changing while the word of God never changes. We see time and time again through the word of God that the truths of scripture being applied to the specific context and the understanding we need the wisdom from God we need is not some new truth. It's how to apply the truth of ages to the current situation we live in. That is the challenge. That's why we've got to continue in discipleship. It's not so that we can just learn more of it. It's so that we can apply what we've learned to the current cultural context. And so that we can say, hey, like in this day, here's what this means. 
In this situation, here's how this truth applies. And so our, our posture and our priority in this world of political upheaval, it's, it's a posture and priority that says I'm going to take the living, breathing word of God and appropriately apply it. Because there was a time that Christianity culturally existed in a positive light in our land. Like there was a time, there was a season where the institutions and the culture of the United States tend to support and advance the same values that we have as Christians. Like that, that was the season that you'd hear people talk about Judeo-Christian values. And they were supported and championed in the public square. Now, to be real honest with you, I was born in 1981. I have heard about that day, but I've never really experienced that day. But for many of you who have had the opportunity to live longer than me, you remember those days. And you cherish those days. You're like, man, like there was so much good then. Understand, culture has changed. And it is not returning. The second piece of understanding we need to have is that there was a season that Christianity was viewed in a neutral light. And I, I believe this was when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s. You know, Britney Spears kind of ruined it. <laughs> but it was this neutral light. The, the seasons where institutions and culture, they, they didn't necessarily support biblical values, but they did not oppose those values. Like there was space for Christians to articulate and live out biblical values that they held dear. Christianity in this neutral light season of our culture, it, it had influence, but it didn't necessarily have support. And now, I don't know when this actually began, but now our culture has moved to viewing Christianity in a negative light. Like the cultural institutions are actively resisting the values of Scripture. And while we seem to be somewhat protected here in East Tennessee from a lot of the onslaught that the rest of the country is experiencing, our, our friends who've been moving in from the West would tell us that it is very difficult to live for Christ there. Like culture has made it almost impossible, the pressures that they feel. And that is fruit of a liberal government, a liberal government or a liberal state. They aim to avoid the controlling or being controlled by its citizens' spiritual or religious commitments. Like that, that's, that's what's happening. Like we're seeing this separation from the biblical ideal of government and government is retreating and running. And friends, that is weakness and passivity. They're retreating and running from this recognition that government is God's good gift to man. So this puts us right in the place that Daniel sat in Daniel chapter 1. When Christianity is being seen in this negative light, where it's not respected, and people are trying to change the way Christians think. So how do we navigate this? What do we do? I think our first response of navigating this cultural moment is not to look outwardly, but to look inwardly. You see, what made Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego so different from the people that were brought into captivity with them is that they pursued holiness and righteousness in spite of what everyone else was doing. Like, they, they were known for their faith, they were known for who they were with God. 
And this is how we respond to the cultural chaos of the day. We rid the hypocrisy in our lives. We look inside first. Like take some time over the next few months and study the gospels of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is on the earth, how much more did he talk about getting sin out of the hearts of religious people than he warred against the culture of the day. Jesus' strategy was if the people who believed in him, the people who had been sent by God were part of the Jewish nation, like if they would just repent and return and he could fill them with holiness and righteousness, he understood that the world would be changed. And so he spent most of his time speaking to people who considered themselves Christians, calling them to holiness and righteousness. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 7. The scripture says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me speak, or let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Like Jesus is like, like start with yourself. Now, the cultural way is just to swat at all the cultural problems and just kind of take a battering ram to these things. And we'll even use the Bible and take verses out of context and says, like, the Bible says. But the Bible is not to be used as a weapon against your enemies. It's to be used as a sword to your soul that you might walk in purity and righteousness. You see, it's inward. It's, it's not outward. People say all the time, Pastor, like the church needs to speak to these things. The church has got to take a more public stand. The church, the church, like they say all these things. But, but the reality is, until the church gets serious about living as salt and light in the world, we'll never have the influence that the gospel offers. But if we're going to be salt and light in the world, we've got to begin becoming holy and pure in our own hearts. We, we've got to begin living distinct. Like, what, what do I mean? Like, people all the time, they... Talk to me and they say, like, we, we got to say something about all the sexual sin in the culture. Listen to me. I'll say more about the sexual sin in the culture when we can get the sexual sin out of the church. There's so much adultery and pornography and all type of sexual sin that happens in the hearts and the lives of people who call themselves Christians. How can we speak to a watching world when we're still tolerating sin in our lives? You, you see, you say, well, man, you ought you to say something about all this government overreach. But yet we sit around and cheat on our taxes and call ourselves Christians. How can this be? Like, why is this okay? We want to nail politicians over unethical behavior. But if you looked at the business books and some of our businesses in our church, unethical in every way. It's the log in the other. Or it's the log in our eye, not the speck in theirs. And if the church of Jesus Christ is ever going to accomplish the influence that God has given her, it's going to be because the people who make up the church, not the institution, the church, walk in holiness. Amen. What's that thing we learned as children? Here's the church and the steeple. And you open it up and you see all the people. Like the people are the church. I had one friend who told me, no, no, Pastor, you got it wrong. It's, here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open it up, and where are the people? But if you go across the street and into the bar, there are the people at every door. Like, what is it? We've become more culturally aligned 
than biblically holy. So our priority in politics are to walk in holiness. Like what should it be is that we choose to lead by example. And our example is the example of a changed life. Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. And God is making his appeal through us. And Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This, this is the example we set. That through Christ we can be made new. That through Christ we can be reconciled. Because for the Christian, Christ is the hope of the world, not a political party. Jesus has a church made up of redeemed sinners who have been transformed by his grace to go into the world and proclaim his message of reconciliation. This is where we stand. And as we do this, we speak the truth in love. That phrase, the truth in love, is found in Ephesians 4. Like in, in that context, Paul's urging the believers in Ephesus to speak in a way that is doctrinally correct and that comes from a biblically committed life of a person to another person who is in need of correction. So for Paul in Ephesians 4, it's like speak the truth in love. It starts with being doctrinally correct and living a life of holiness before we're able to speak for others. So don't let Satan trick you into thinking Christian identity is just because you were born in a Christian land. I'm going to travel and meet so many of our missionaries. I'll meet people and say, yeah, yeah, like I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian country. The country that you were born in has no standing on your inheritance of heaven. It's only through Jesus. And so what we must understand is that the hope of the world is Jesus. It's not where you were born or where you were not born. And our posture in politics has to be a posture that is pointing people by example to Jesus. So what does that look like? Let me just give you four simple ideas. Or they're not simple, but four ideas, I think, that kind of frame up when you're thinking, your engagement in politics, what should you be looking for to be this example? First, I think when you engage in politics, you need to have an understanding of the biblical role of leader, leadership. You understand the biblical role of leadership. In Matthew 20, verse 20, Jesus called to his disciples and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who would be first among you must be your slave. Even the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So the, the picture of biblical leadership is a picture of service. So many people in politics are pursuing power, but Christians lead by example that leadership is service. And I want to vote for people who are not aspiring for power, but are aspiring to serve and serve people to lead them to righteousness. Second, when you think about how do we apply this of being the example as we engage in politics, it's, it's an understanding of leadership and then it's matters of life. It's, it's matters of life. In Genesis 1.27, the scripture says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Like in his own image. The theological term right there is the imago Dei. And this is what separates humans from every other created animal. It's, it's the soul. It's the image of God in us. It's the eternal essence of every human. And so life matters because life is a gift from God. 
This starts at conception, but does not end at birth. Like for a Christian, matters of life, it's, it's for all of life. Like we respect and honor all of life, that God has established our beginning and God knows our end. Whether you want to call yourself pro-life or whole life, we understand that Christians are people of life because our life is not just simply our DNA. Our life is not just our brain function. Our life is not just our heart beating. Our life is a gift from God. He marked us with his image and he determines our coming and our going. And so matters of life is not a political matter. It's a theological matter because life begins and ends with God. Third, marriage and family. What priorities should Christians hold in politics? Biblical understanding of leadership, matters of life, matters of marriage and family. Genesis 2.24, the scripture says, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they should be one flesh. Right, so this idea of God established the institution of family and has a specific design of what family should look like. So God has given this design. This is God ordaining family, God initiating family. And as God gives each family the gift of children, parents are responsible, according to Deuteronomy 6, to teach their kids how to know and love the Lord. Mom and dad, you will answer to the Lord for how you trained and discipled your children to know and love the Lord. And so when I'm thinking about how I should engage and what priorities should I hold to, the priority of marriage and family has to be central because we will answer to God for our marriage and for our family because these are his ideas. Fourth, religious liberty. Religious liberty. What priorities should Christians hold in politics? Biblical understanding of leadership, matters of life, matters of marriage and family, religious liberty. When, when it comes to religious liberty, we've got to do some systematic theology. We've got to kind of link some things together. Like there is no specific verse in the scripture that said thou shalt have religious liberty. But when we think about the themes of scripture and begin to understand the truths of scripture, like religious liberty is a matter that we see is very important if we're going to live out the truths of scripture. Like in the 10 commandments, the scripture says in Exodus 20 verse three, you should have no other gods before me. And this is kind of the starting place of religious liberty because God is teaching that nothing should set itself before his people. There should be no other gods. There is one God. There is God of Israel, Jehovah God. And because God is ultimate, it's wrong when things set themselves up as gods that are not Jehovah God. And if you lose out on religious liberty, you're a part of a movement or a government that attempts to play the part of God. Like that's why this becomes so important. That if, if you lose the ability to have faith in God, like if government begins to fill that role, then that is another God you've set before you. Here's an example of why religious liberty is so important. It's, it's not right for my kids' teachers to undermine or teach my children to disobey what Bridget and I are teaching in our home. Like a teacher doesn't have the authority, the ultimate authority over my children in the ways that God has given authority to Bridget and I. And so in the same way, the government shouldn't tell a citizen who God is or how God wants to be worshiped. It is right and good for people, for government, for institutions to restrict themselves to the areas they have authority over. 
And a government is designed to see that the laws of the land are followed and the citizens are protected. The government is not designed to tell you who or how to worship. Especially you say, you want religious liberty. Oh, I want religious liberty. Because what I know is that when people choose another religion or path, they ultimately recognize their hopelessness and come to Christ. Because Christ is the only one who died in the place of sinners. Christ is the only one who stepped out of heaven and came down. Every other religion says, earn your way up to God. What an exhausting experience. But the Christian message says God came down to us and by his grace offers us the opportunity to repent and believe and be reconciled to God, which is what our heart has been longing for. And so this priority of religious liberty helps me. But you can think about like Acts 4. Like in Acts 4, this plays out. Remember Peter and John, they were teaching and preaching and the religious leaders were like, stop doing that. You're just disrupting everything. And Peter and John respond in, in chapter 4, verse 20. They're like, hey, like whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or, or, or rather than to God, you must judge. But Peter and John said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. They were practicing religious liberty. They're like, look, you're going to tell me whether it's right or wrong, but I'm going to speak it because of what God's done for me. We even find this in our Declaration of Independence. The opening of the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, that they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like that God has given us rights, that God has initiated all of this. And so these priorities, they help us begin to see how we should engage in political processes of our day. Finally today, let me answer this one short question that seems to come up more often in political seasons like we're about to enter than any other time. The question is, is God on America's side? Like, is, is God on America's side? It, it, it's this kind of reaction or fruit of this idea of American exceptionalism. And, and listen, we have an exceptional land, and our history should declare how strong and mighty and powerful this country has been. So like when we think about should it, what should be taught in schools, our children should be taught of the greatness of this land. Because there is no other land like, like you travel this world and you'll quickly discover while it might be a mess here, it's messier everywhere else. God truly has blessed the United States of America. But the idea of is God on America's side is the wrong question. The right question would be, is America on God's side? Like that's the real question to wrestle with. Not is there some special blessing that God has reserved for the United States of America? That's nowhere in the scripture. Like what happens when, when people get themselves there, they, they, they take Old Testament passages that was written about God's national favor on Israel and they try to apply that to America. Hear me, like today there are Christians in many nations, so the promise of God is not constricted to some geopolitical boundary where all the Christians live. Like in the Old Testament, Israel was God's people. They were fulfilling the promise from Abraham. And when Jesus came and all men, Jews and Gentiles, could come to faith in Christ, the kingdom of God expanded beyond the geopolitical border of Israel. 
And so the promise of God's blessing today refers to the people of God living obedient lives as followers of Christ. Like that's where the promise of blessing is. Psalm 29 verse 2. The scripture says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And there is a lot of groaning in our day. And the reason there's so much groaning in our day is because the people who know the blessing of God, the Christians of our day, have withdrawn from the public square of our day. Listen to me. The answer to the question is America on God's side will be realized when the people of God with a backbone of steel and a heart like Jesus step into the public square and live out their faith publicly. Think about how much effort and time you spend making certain that you do everything right according to your employer or according to the culture, or according to your neighbors. Think about how much time you spend trying to keep up with the Joneses, and if your last name's Jones, I'm not, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> Think about how much effort, energy that goes in to just fitting in. Hear me now, that is not the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom says in this world you will never fit in. Just go ahead and admit it, acknowledge it. Yesterday I was fishing with my daughter and I did something and she said, Dad. I'm like, sorry, babe, I'm just weird. She said, I know. I was like, wrong answer. We're so afraid of being considered different. But friends, if you're marked by the cross of Jesus Christ, you're different. And you should have different priorities. And you should have different goals. And the goal for you should be to live in obedience to Christ and to allow Christ to lead you into sharing his blessing. Think back to God's promise to Abraham. He was like, hey, like I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. But God's promise for us today was not found in that promise to Abraham, but found in the promise to Jesus. And what Jesus has done, how he has transformed us and changed us, is so that we would be a blessing. So it is not wasteful to spend your life serving others. Jesus even spoke against building bigger barns. He's like, don't just accumulate stuff here. Man, invest what God has given. Steward what God has given. And some of you, God has given leadership ability. You should steward that because when you step into the public square and when you lead, you bring the hand, presence, and blessing of God to bear on your community. Like, we need Christian aldermen. We need Christian mayors. We need Christian commissioners. We need Christian state representatives and senators. We need Christian governors, Christian congressmen, Christian U.S. senators, Christian vice presidents, and Christian presidents. And there are many of us who God has been leading toward political office, and we resist that because we're afraid of the criticism, because we're afraid of the hardship, because we're afraid of the cost. Listen, man, if you don't want to be criticized, sell ice cream, because that's the only option you got. And somebody's even going to find a way to complain about that. But if we want to begin to answer the right question, is America on God's side? It's only going to happen when Christian men and women find some boldness like Daniel. Understand government is a gift from God for our good. Live out 
biblical priorities, theological matters in the public square so that God can begin to bless our land again. Isn't it interesting? At the State of the Union, most times the president finishes, may God bless America. We've even begun to sing that song again and more in public, particularly baseball games. Man, it's been so fun to watch baseball coming back. God bless America. Listen, the statement of God bless America is not some fairy dust that we just sprinkle over the lives we want to live. God blessing America is determined by God's people walking in obedience, living out their faith personally and publicly, being who they say they are, and allowing the presence of God to bless others through them. This is the way, friends. Our hope is not in a political office or political entity. Our hope is in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Like He has provided salvation for all. And God knew that we would need saving long before governments were established. And so God's plan A is that the world would know Jesus. And God has entrusted his church with that message. And so followers of Jesus, let's get the message of the hope of the gospel. And let's get the presence of Almighty God into every corner of our community. That God may bring his hand of blessing upon our land again. Thanks for joining us this week on the Concord Online Podcast. If you have any questions surrounding today's sermon or simply want to learn more, you can do so at concordonline.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with each weekly release. 